This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. Hello, I'm Phil McKinney, and welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where we are all about helping you go from an idea to launching your innovation. Common questions I get via email from listeners of the show is really around just the struggles of how do you actually execute your ideas. Uh, where do you start? Uh, you know, the struggles people have, the failure rate of which people trying to take an idea and do something significant and meaningful with it. So today I brought in a specific guest to hopefully that can answer some of those questions given that uh, I've got my own perspective. But today we brought in Daniel Poser who's got a book out called 13ers. Why only 13% of companies successfully execute their strategy and how yours can be one of them. Um, and so therefore, uh, I'm interested in hearing from you, Daniel, just the background on the book. How did this book come about? What, what prompted you to, to yeah. look into this? Yeah, well, uh, well, thank you for having me on. I, I really appreciate it, especially on, on your program. Uh, it was years ago uh, when I was in my own businesses, um, I would struggle with my own execution of strategy. We'd come up with a great strategy and, and it was, uh, I mean, as, as you know well, you know, most strategies don't get executed. In this case, 87% of companies fail to execute their strategy. And, and, and so I, I looked at that for a long time and some, some folks came along and offered to buy my companies and, and uh, I was on the street, <laughs> you know? I was like, what am I gonna do next? And I thought, you know, what's the biggest question that really uh, I have, and that is, you know, why are people struggling so hard to execute their strategy? Why, why is it so damn hard? And why was it so hard for me? And uh, it, 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 was, uh, it was during that time that I got introduced to some folks out of Temecula, California, who were uh, doing surveys for the business journals. And it's, um, it was the, uh, it, it was the uh, best place to work surveys and awards that I got interested in and he they gave me the surveys and I began to study why I thought from my perspective why these companies were doing so well because best place to work companies do two to three and or greater times better performance on the bottom line yeah and that's always an interesting question right we yeah. see all the surveys of best places to work you look at the Inc. 500 list or the Inc. 1000 list of the fastest growing, and there seems to be kind of this correlation between success and best places to work. What's what's that linkage? Why do you think that is? Well, you know, if you look at the Gallup information, they'll tell you that uh, a lot of the reasons why people do so well is because of engagement. And the more I asked about just that one word, engagement, what, what does that mean? to most people, most people couldn't tell me what engagement is. So when I took these surveys, I had two years worth of surveys of companies that actually became best places to work and companies that did not become best places to work. And I went out and interviewed them. And I began looking at what were the comments that people were saying. And it turns out that the, the same comments, the kind, the kind of comments people were making um, on both sides were very similar. So what what I discovered was that it was it was engagement, but 
it was deeper than engagement. It was connectedness. It was the ability to connect with each other, connect with a vision, and connect with the leadership of an organization. And that's a that's a series of conversations. That's a network of conversations that literally goes on. Now, Gallup doesn't tell you that, and that's fine. I mean, I, I like Gallup's work, uh, but I'm really looking at it from more of a an ontological perspective. In other words, uh, ontological being the science of human being, the science of being. And I want to know what it is that, that, it, that a company is being, what is it that leaders are being that alter the, the relationship to the strategy so that the strategy actually does get executed. And so are there, is it just one conversation or are there multiple kinds of conversations that you really need to have in order to make that successful? Well, I found that in, in looking at, at first I found there's nine conversations. It's like I have these, I found these nine similar conversations. They were the same conversations going on in the, in the non-best place to work as going on best in the best place to work. Only the best place to work companies were doing such a much better job at fulfilling on those conversations. And then I discovered there's a 10th one. I was working for a nonprofit doing a pro bono. And they said to me, they came to me and said, you know, we can't raise money. We, you know, like we're struggling raising money. We, we can't execute our strategy if we don't raise money. And I began looking at that. And I discovered that the reason was because that they really weren't contributable. Now, this is kind of a funny word because contribution, you know, like, what does that mean? Go, keep going. So when we, when we, when I began to look at the con, this whole conversation called uh, being contributable, it, it meant that they, that the people who were engaged in that conversation were open for more than just writing a check to a nonprofit, but actually contributing like a partner, like I'm investing in you as, as an organization. So that got me thinking and I began to interview people about, uh, and CEOs about why uh, contribution was such an important part. So there's more than, there's more than one conversation. There's more than nine, there's 10. And those 10 conversations in my book, 13ers talks about how to manage an organization that is connected. Well, I think it's an important part, right? Because yeah. I've, I've worked in organizations where the CEO just is, you know, he wants to prove he's the smartest man in the room type of thing versus exactly. really being open, right? You know, in, in yeah. an organization. Exactly. You know, and I've been in large organizations. Now I'm a CEO for a smaller organization. Um, and the, 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 the importance, though, of getting everybody. And it's not so much, I don't know, about just contribution, but it's also about buy-in. Right. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's easier to get the buy-in when you allow people to contribute because it's also about ownership. Exactly. It's about them being that you know taking ownership for not just their contribution, but recognizing that the contribution of the team, and therefore you can you can elicit uh, organizations that can achieve much higher than than any one or small organization where you've got just a single leader and a bunch of followers. Yeah, you're exactly right, and and I think you're a good example of that actually, Phil, <laughs> because you because you understand that and you understand that. Uh, that people don't execute strategies that they don't own. Well, I could, I could tell you one, you know, one having been, you know, the CTO at Hewlett Packard, you know, 120,000 employees, 178 countries. That's a whole different scale to where now I'm a CEO. Now it's only, you know, it's 210 people. But 
you know, you think, okay, you held a senior leadership role in any large organization that you could just make the step to CEO. It is completely different. It is a completely different beast. And I've had to learn that from that standpoint of your role as being a senior executive versus being the person is something that just totally is, is transformative from the standpoint of what your role is. Right. And the ability to kind of check your ego at the door. Well, so I think you're right. And, and I, I, the thing that I think you're, you're hitting on uh, is that one of the biggest things that ends, I think it's the first thing I talk about in my book is that the, the biggest downfall of CEOs today is that they think they have to know. Right. Because if they don't know, then they don't belong in the position. They think they don't belong in the position. But there isn't a CEO out there that knows everything that I've ever met. Yeah, and that's it. I mean, it, it is about having to admit that, hey, I don't know everything, right? And that, you you know, look, I came in and became a CEO in an industry that I had no experience in, right? So it's a little bit easier than coming in and everybody's looking to you to be the expert. Yeah, exactly. So that's actually been very helpful for me in my transition to a CEO role. So we're going to take a quick commercial break here. Uh, and when we come back, we're going to pick up with Dan right where we left off, digging more into his book and the findings, particularly around why 13% of the companies are successful. So we come back, we'll pick that up. Uh, if you're interested in staying connected to Kill Innovations, text the word INNOVATE to 33444. I'm Phil McKinney, and you're listening to Kill Innovations on the BizTalk Radio Network. Talk Radio. This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovators Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation so we're going to pick up this segment with dan Prozer talking about 13ers which is his book talking about why only 13 percent of companies successfully execute their strategy and how yours can be one of them so so dan why don't you pick up where we were talking specifically around what were some of those characteristics of the 13 we talked about engagement as being one in the first segment so right uh and so the thing that i i did was um here, here I am. I've sold my companies. All, all my employees are gone. I'm thinking, what am I, what am I going to do with my life? And I started getting interested in why these companies are struggling so, so much. And, I, and, and a little bit of background, Phil, is that um, at that time, I was on the board of a company or an organization called the Imago Relationship International. And really, at that, that is a, that's a couplehood. <laughs> you know, it's like it's dealing with marriage and couplehood and and uh, I, I began looking at some of the same dynamics that are being used in couplehood therapy and using them in business. And the thing that I discovered was that, you know, businesses have t tended to uh, really be designed around what's called an individual uh, paradigm or an individual value system and it's an individual value system in which there's tremendous competition and people are out for themselves and people are looking out just for number one and I'm committed to that there be a shift in 
the paradigm in business and it be shifted to a relational value system. And so I began looking at what is it that makes up a relational value system and it really came down to uh, the kind of conversations that go on in business. Business is a conversation. I mean, all day long you have a conver you're having conversations, you're having different conversations about different things, but nonetheless, business comes down to a conversation and how well you as a leader manage those conversations will determine the outcome of your business. So, yeah, I mean, and it, and it is a, very important from the standpoint of how do you get the, all those uh, elements together. What are some of the other characteristics that you've got in, in 13ers? You talked a lot about, um, you know, one topic that I loved out of the book was this whole issue of the uh, execution virus, you know. Uh. And, and <laughs> it's, it's one of my favorite topics, which I, which I if, you know, reading the book and, and seeing how you described it, uh, the term I use is the uh, innovation antibodies. I you love know, that. That's know, the, great. The people who are in the organization whose sole job is to basically stomp on the idea. And what did you yeah. find? One, you know, at least my perspective from the innovation antibodies is everybody has them. Right? It doesn't matter the size of the organization. It doesn't matter. No. But, Everybody's got but, them. But it's radically different how different um, organizations respond to it. Yeah. I love that. Innovation antibodies. Well, so there's a virus that goes on in every organization. And... Um, I took it from a little different perspective. I don't have the same uh, d uh, depth of innovation background that you do. But what I am looking f at uh, at this from is, a, is this ontological perspective, the science of being. You know, who are you being as a leader? Who are you being as an organization? And when I look at an organization, I'm looking at what are the conversations that stand in the way of you having what you say that you want in your business. And if you can understand what those conversations are, then you can actually go to the next step and, and determine who you need to be in order to be the company that you declare yourself to be in the beginning. So the antibodies the virus that we're that i'm talking about is a meme you know uh, memes memes are a big word in in computing uh we've been using them for a long time but literally we have these viruses these conversations that run in the back of of the con of the organization contextually and they undermine and they sabotage performance and when you go into an organization, and as you say, every organization has them. Well, every individual has them as well. And if you understand what's going on, you understand what's really running the show in your in your business. And if you can understand what's running your show, then you what's the what's running the show in your business, then you can actually go in and invent a new place to come from, a new to to counter the virus, become the antivirus, and and, and create an organization by declaration. Stand in that as a future and come from it rather than trying to get someplace. So hold up. You said yeah. declaration. What do you mean by that? Give okay. me an example. Okay. So the first uh, – so in, in the book, there's um, the, a process called the Breakthrough Solution Framework. Breakthrough Solution Framework really comes down to uh, three three basic steps. The first step is – Declaring an impossible outcome, something that is so impossible that that you can't imagine how it would be possible to actually accomplish that. And then, as I said, you've got to understand what the conversation is or the 
the virus that's in the organization that the conversation that undermines and sabotages and then you have to come up with who do you need to be in order for you to have what you say that you want so the big thing is what kind of an outcome do you want and frankly it's it's by declaration it's I mean the country our country was declared into existence so anything that is worth having is declared into existence i i can't imagine there's one thing that you have innovated that you've created that you didn't first think in your head and speak out of your mouth well i think in the case of the innovation game what we typically say is is that you know thinking it or even just writing it down is not all that value valuable it's the ability to actually translate that from the standpoint of being able to uh, declare it, and I didn't use the word declare, but it was really about communicating it to others to help transmit the, the knowledge in that. So let's pick that That's up great. when we come back from the uh, from this uh, commercial break. Got to pay a few bills. Uh, stay right where you're at. We're going to be right back with Dan and more about his book, Thirteeners. If you want to stay connected with everything going on here at Kill Innovations, text the word INNOVATE to 33444 or visit slash innovate. We're going to be right back after this commercial break with more with Dan, talking more about how you can actually take that strategy and be successful. I'm Phil McKinney. You're listening to Killer Innovations on the BizTalk Radio Network. BizTalk Radio. This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. Welcome back to Killer Innovations. I'm your host, Phil McKinney. We're picking up this in this segment, continuing our discussion with Dan Prozer on the 13% of companies really successfully execute their strategy based on his book, 13ers. Now, as we were ending the last segment, we were talking about being, you know, declaring or be declarative in, in the form of what it is your strategy is or whatever, in the case of me, what the innovation is. And as I was sharing, as we were going through the commercial break, you know, I, I recognize that I do that, but I've never used that term. And now that I'm sitting here thinking about it, I'm not quite sure how I do it. I just do it. Is there? You're just that good? I don't know if I'm that good. I think it's just... <laughs> You know, I, I tend to think out loud. I tend to try to declare as a way of setting a vision or setting a strategy yes. that the rest of the team can rally around. Yes, most so people do you, can't do that. So, okay, so, so tell me, tell me okay. what I'm doing because I can't, I can't reverse uh, okay. engineer what I do. Okay, so it, there's a really great story that I picked up uh, back in 2004. Um, most people know that we're, we're here in Colorado, and uh, I live up in the mountains uh, where the resorts are. And, and in fact, they just opened up last week, practically all. I guess they all opened up. We've got snow, and we're not. And I'm not just plugging Colorado, but it, back in 2004, Keystone Resort, the ski resort, Keystone, opened their winter season with a a, a, a contest, a competition called the 36-hour Team Challenge. And in this Team Challenge, 
there were about 80 teams that com were competing for $3,600. So all these teams got together and they started out the 36 hour team challenge and, you know, they went overnight and they kept going all night long. And some of them were snowboarders, some of them were skiers. At the end of the 36 hour team challenge, and it's, it's interesting because my neighbors uh, were at this and were part of the part of the award ceremony. They, they gave the third place award and then they gave the second place award and then came time to them, for them to announce the first place award. And so they, uh, they came up, they, they got up there and they said, okay, now the, the winner of the 36 hour, 30, $3,600 in the 36 hour team challenge is the team that just won $3,600. And everybody stopped and it was like silence. And they said, well, who, what was the name of the team? They said, the name of the team is the team that just won $3,600. They said, what kind of a name is that for a team? Well, what these two guys, two guys by the men, and I hope you're out there listening to me, you guys, Bill Pomeroy and Nick Gearhart, had gotten together several weeks before the competition. And they had, uh, they, they had put their names in for the competition, and they put their name of their team down the team that just won $3,600 now it, they didn't say the team that was going to win $3,600 they didn't say they said the team that just won as if it they already declared the future as if it had just happened and I would suspect Phil that you do this frequently okay so you're literally inventing a conversation not about how to get to the future but how to literally stand in that future coming from that future and then close the gap between where you are and where you say where you are in reality uh, let's let's put it that way and then where you say you want to be so if you're the team that just won $3,600 you are going to literally have to take the actions necessary to close the gap between where you say you are in the, as a future and where you literally are in reality currently so I've used this story with my clients for years because I think it's one of the most powerful lessons for an organization to learn to be able to declare a future that doesn't exist, that looks impossible. In fact, people, he, I mean, what if they lost? Can you imagine what their friends would have said to them? I mean, they took a big risk. And you do this too. I do this. People who are creating futures literally declare those futures and they declare them as if they exist right now. Stand in them and then ask, how did I get here? Not, not stand in the current and look at this possible future and ask yourself, how am I going to get there? And what steps am I going to take? Like you're gonna climb a ladder, but literally stand in that future as if it's already occurred and ask yourself, how did I get here? What was missing that, you know, that I, that got me here? Well, in, this, in the case of the innovation game, what some people will refer to that as is reverse road mapping. So you're, you're, you're you, oh, you know, we have our a new tale. A new, you gotta give me all kinds of stuff. Man. You yeah, gotta man, new <laughs> But you know, the, the fact in, in the innovation game, right? We all focus on road maps. I'm, you know. Day zero, day zero plus 90, day zero plus 180. What's the plan to get to delivering the product? In the case of future casting, 
when you're trying to figure out what the future is really all about, it's about, like you said, standing in the future and looking backwards. Yeah. Um, and there's lots of different ways to do it. You, you just declare it. Like I said, I've never thought about it that way. But now that you've described it, it's kind of like, okay, it makes sense. In some cases, like one of the things we did in, in, at HP was is we would create these future videos. So we would actually project out some time into the future given trend lines of what we saw certain technologies and we would actually create that future in the form of a short film so three to five minutes very you know very high production value uh basically to get the viewer to suspend disbelief that the future would would or would not happen one of them is one called roku now this this one was done in 2006 and it's not roku the box that's it gives you video streaming to your TV. It's R-O-K-U. You can search for it on YouTube, or you can go to my YouTube channel, Phil McKinney, and you'll find it there. And it's <laughs> about an augmented reality game in San Francisco. And I literally still get hundreds of emails off that video for people wanting to know where to buy the game. And the game's never existed. And in fact, a lot of the AR companies in Silicon Valley show that video to kind of paint what the potential for augmented reality is in the future for for gameplay, um, but it's one of the, and that was 2006, right? So we're nine years in the future, and it that 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 vision still resonates with people, um, even over that time frame. Um, but it is important because otherwise, when you're standing here, we tend as humans to think linearly, whereas things like technology progress exponentially. And humans has a very hard time thinking exponentially right. from the context of what is the future going to really be. It's actually easier to stand there, paint them a story, and look back because then they project themselves into that future. And what you're talking about, it's, I just never have thought about it in that way, and that is exactly yeah. behind the scenes what people do when they try to paint that future is to declare it. Well, I can tell you that when you do that, and obviously, I mean – what you're saying is peop this is what people want. I mean, if people are seeing this still today and still emailing you about this, what is it, 10 years later almost. Yeah, nine years coming up on 10. Yeah, yeah. so this is what, this is what, I mean, I don't want to go into this in, in, into this in depth because we don't have the time, but, you know, this is a reverse salient. This is what is holding people back is that they cannot envision standing themselves in the future and being able to look back, but when they do, as you know, that is what creates that is what creates the possibility and the big companies. So as we're coming down to the end of the, of this segment, what, Dan, I'm interested. Mm. Entrepreneurs, what's the one thing, the one thing that that a listener could could think and do differently that would have the biggest impact on their ability to get the execution right? Okay, well, if I'm talking to a CEO, for example, what I the the first conversation I want to have with a CEO is to stop trying to manage people and start managing promises. So I want to bring accountability into organizations in a relational way, not in a way in which you use accountability to uh, punish people or you know, demand things from people, but it's a, it's a relational concept. It's a, it's a relational value system accountability where instead of managing the people and getting them telling them what to do and 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 getting in their case then to actually manage the promises elicit promise 
And that becomes the promise-based management system that I talk in the, about in the book. Great. So, Dan, if people want to follow you, what's the, where's the best place they can find you? Well, the best place to go right now is 13ersbook.com. And we'll include that link in the show notes. So and, listeners, and, just go to Kill Innovations. And if, we'll have that link And there. if you go to 13ersbook.com, I'll, I'll give you a book for shipping and handling. Oh, I'll wow. Send you, I'll, and I'll sign it. That's great. And I'll send it to you. Okay, perfect. We'll put that into the show notes. Dan, really appreciate you taking the time coming down here. Thank you, Phil. It's appreciate it. Stay tuned. We've got a killer question to really stretch your mind. We're going to exercise that creative muscle, so don't go anywhere. Uh, so when we come right back, we'll, we'll jump into the, the, the question. I'm Phil McKinney. You're listening to Killer Innovations on the BizTalk Radio Network. Talk Radio. This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation so get ready to exercise your creative muscle as we've talked about in past shows it's about getting out there and working that muscle so that you can be prepared when those opportunities emerge so today's killer question is is how could my product change in five years and this ties directly into the interview with Dan in the previous segments talking about being declarative about what that future is and then what is it going to take to make that future happen. So the question here is, is do you sell atoms or do you sell bytes? Do you distribute a physical thing or do you simply deliver or distribute something that's a you know, digital copy, whether it be music or whatever? Well, think about Amazon and the Kindle. Now, Jeff Bezos asked, you know, what is my role going to be if the nature of books change? He realized that to stay relevant and necessary, his company needed to retain control over something tangible and physical. Uh, there could be other options, but Amazon could bet that the reading experience would fully transition to audio, but they ultimately gambled that the act of reading was still integral to the enjoyment of a book. So how do you stay in control of a physical experience when your product is going from atoms to bytes? Now think about how profound of change this is. The music industry went through it, right? But what could you do if your physical product, one that had been around unchanged for hundreds or thousands of years, suddenly seemed headed towards obsolescence? So how do you still keep yourself relevant, an essential part of the transaction or the experience, especially if, like Amazon, you're primarily functioning as the middleman between the product and the customer, the product being the publishers of the book, the authors of the book, the process of writing and getting a book printed on hardcover, stuffing them in a box, shipping them to Amazon so they're in the Amazon warehouse. How do you keep that link alive? For Amazon, that link is providing the medium that brings the printed word to the reader. For that medium, it's books, and now for many, it's the Kindle. Now, Amazon has been smart to keep physical ownership over the process of reading. Now, even though a reader may have transferred allegiances to digital media, Amazon is still controlling access to the thing in a reader's hand. Now, granted, there are plenty of competitors spinning up 
all with their own pros and cons and their software applications running on iPads and um, Android tablets. But a Kindle, like a Hoover vacuum cleaner before, it became both the specific name of the product and the catch-all term for its category, which is actually a great place to be because you can own that mind share. Now, it's going to be interesting to see how far Amazon pushes the possibilities of the Kindle and how its relationship with publishers and authors will develop. Now, publishers are no longer in the business of selling paper, yet most still act as though they are. The publishing industry is still figuring out exactly how to handle pricing on ebooks and especially how ebook pricing can be aligned with traditional book pricing in a way that makes sense to the consumer. Now, customers are not happy to pay more for a Kindle edition than a hardcover edition of a bestseller. Yet some books are more expensive as digital downloads than as the hardcover books. It doesn't make sense to the consumer, and it's somewhat downright dangerous situation for all concerned if book piracy takes off in the same way that music piracy did decades ago. You don't want to antagonize your customers and make them feel like fools for buying what you are selling. Now, offering a digital download for more than a hardcover does just that. Now, I can speak from my own experience having published my book, and my book came out in uh, February of 2012, which was kind of an interesting transition given that I, I signed my book deal um, at the end of 2010. Uh, with Hyperion, which then got purchased by Hackett, who's my publisher now. And going through the whole process with a publisher who definitely looked at the book as the paper book, not the digital book. And in fact, I wrote a chapter in the book where I had described what I viewed or a proposal that I had presented to my publisher, where I really wanted to create a digital interactive book. My book's all about innovation. It's all about creativity. It's all about generating ideas. And today, if you buy the book and you read it, I get these emails all the time where people either cover the book in notes or they've got post-it notes all over the book. I wanted to create an application whereby they would, the book itself would actually capture the ideas as you went through the process. Needless to say, it turned into a big battle with my publisher. My publisher turned it down. And then when I was actually writing my book, I used that as an example of an inability of companies to kind of see the future. They were holding on to their past. So I wrote this chapter and I submitted it to my editor and publisher at the book, expecting that they were going to go crazy on it. And all I got back was one word response when I submitted that chapter for review. And the response was interesting. And so I go ahead, I did a little tweaking to the chapter. I submitted all the chapters back to the publisher when I finished the book. And lo and behold, that was the chapter that got the biggest response, I guess would be the nice way to put it. Um, they were like, okay, Phil, we get it, but you can't write this. However, the chapter's still in the book, toned down a little bit, so I'm giving you a little bit behind the scenes when you read that chapter in the book to know what the real story was. But I was an extremely frustrated innovator. Here I am, I'm an innovator, and I'm producing a book that gets printed to paper. And it's probably one of the more frustrating experiences that I've had. And now I'm in the process of working on the second book, which is uh, something that I hopefully will do something completely different with. So again, the sparking points for this question is, is what societal, economic, and demographic changes will affect your customers over the next five years? Think about Amazon. Think about the Kindle on that jump. What's the next jump? And are you missing the weak signals about the future of your industry because you feel like the seismic shifts will not affect you? Don't humor yourself. They will. 
So get your notebook out, spend the 10 minutes, come up with those ideas. Don't forget to check out KillerInnovations.com. You want to check out the show notes, um, as Dan has graciously offered. You go there, you can click, go through to his site, um, and you can uh, pick up a copy of his book for the cost of the shipping and handling. We'll have all the links for that. Also, we'll have all the show notes. Don't miss on all the other great shows on BizTalk Radio Network. Visit BizTalkRadio.com, and while you're over there, grab the mobile app for both your iPhone and Android. And you can listen to Killer Innovations and all of the other great shows that are live. And here's where I need your help. If you know of an innovator, if you know of a company story, a startup story, or some just great innovators, even in large organizations that are doing some great work, drop me a note. I'd love to have them on the show. Get a chance to share their story to all the listeners of the radio show. We're on 30 stations coast to coast here in the United States. And then the podcast, when it comes out, the, the couple days after the show is broadcast. So drop me that note. Would love to hear from them. Today's show uh, engineered by Brandon and Jeremiah. Thank you, guys. I'm Phil McKinney. Don't let your innovation critics get you down. Keep on innovating. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. The opinions you hear on BizTalk Radio are those of the hosts, callers, and guests, and do not necessarily reflect those of this station, BizTalk Radio, its management, or advertisers. The information on BizTalk Radio does not constitute a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any product or service. If you have any questions about BizTalk Radio, contact us at 817-274-1609 or at biztalkradio.com. BizTalk Radio. 